This morning we get the privilege of reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you're reading from these Bibles, it's on page 986. We're going to start at verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Our second reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, 
starting from verse 12. It's on page 1063 of your um, pew Bibles. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings, teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to those who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Nice to see you. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you, it's great to be here this morning. I'm going to pray for us as we come to look at Revelation chapter 2. Father, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Open our hearts to feel it and to believe it. Open our wills to put into practice what you encourage us and challenge us with today. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you will be magnified and that you will be glorified, both in this gathering but also in our lives. We ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, One of the uh, favourite lines of a favourite hymn of mine goes like this. uh, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that is true for me, and I'm convinced it's true for you, that All of us are prone to drift and to wander and to compromise in our faith. It is so easy, isn't it, to have this this veneer of Christianity. And yet our hearts can become cold and our lives can become compromised. It is easy as a church to be so concerned about being relevant and cool and engaging with the culture and yet we we can lose our Christ-likeness. It's easy to slip into what I call comfortable Christianity, where we've got all the beliefs right, but it stops changing our behavior. We've got a doctrine right, and yet we're not living the distinctive lives that God calls us to. And it's easy because, let's be honest, we live in a world where we are bombarded by all these voices 24-7. The world is shouting at us what is now normal, what is now right, what is now wrong, what's now acceptable, what's what's unacceptable. And so as we live in this world seeking to be a Christian, it is so easy to cozy up with culture, to be comfortable in the world, and to lose our Christ-likeness. Our world is so seductive, I hope you know that. 
every moment of every day dangled before you are all these temptations. You need this house, you need this job, you need this pool, you need this car, you need this holiday. You need to look like this, you need to speak like this. Come on, you deserve this. Come on, you need this. And the sad reality that, that way too many Christians think they can have the best of both worlds. We think we can have a bit of Christ and a bit of culture. We think we can have a bit of the world and a bit of the word of God. And God says you can't do that. It's going to be dangerous and disastrous. You'll end up so compromised and conflicted in your faith. A few years ago, I was kayaking in New Zealand, and I made the boating error 101. One foot on the bank, one foot on the boat for just a fraction too long. And you know that's always going to end in disaster. And yet, and yet, we think we can do that with our Christian lives. One foot loving the world and one foot loving God. We think that we can be loving Jesus and loving our culture. And we think we can get away with it, and we just can't. There's a, a verse that I love from James chapter 4, verse 4. It says this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? He looks at the church, the people of God, and says, You're adulterers. You're having love affairs with the world. You're supposed to be married to me. I, I bought you. I own you. I love you. You're my chosen, pure, set-apart, holy people. And, and I long for you to be faithful. And yet you flirt with the world. That's true, isn't it? We start to talk like the world. We have the same values as the world. We pursue wealth like the world. We use power like the world. We treat our bodies like the world. We pursue relationships like the world. We find our security and identity and our satisfaction in the things of this world. And it breaks God's heart. It's so subtle and so enticing. It's a bit like covid we all know this virus is out there, but we just kind of live with it and become very complacent. And it's like a virus in the church. It's called compromise. It's called cozying up with culture. And I've seen it again and again and again. That's where we're heading today, Pergamum, the compromised church. So if Ephesus was the loveless church where there's all deeds and no devotions, if, if Smyrna was the suffering church where there's persecution and poverty, when you come to Pergamon, it's the compromised church. And a word of warning, this is not a comfortable sermon. So verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamon, right. So Pergamon is this, this city on a hill it was the capital, the Roman capital of Asia Minor. It was known for two things. It was known for its, its worship and its words. It was known for its worship because, it, because in Pergamon there were temples everywhere. There, there's a temple of Diocinus who was the, the god of alcohol and pleasure. Does that sound familiar? The temple of Athena who was the god of beauty. Does that sound familiar? the temple for the God of healing. And so people worshipped all these different gods, wisdom, beauty, alcohol, healing, I want to add 
Money, sex, power, popularity, fitness, family, health, holidays. People pursued all these things and found their identity and their security in that kind of stuff. That was Pergamum. Worship and words. Because the church in Pergamon prided themselves with being the intellectual church. Pergamon had the second largest library in the known world. 200,000 books and scrolls. These people loved doctrine and they loved learning. So as a Christian in Pergamon, that was your danger. You worshipped all the stuff of the world. And you filled your mind with all the things of this world. Got three things for us, three C's today. The first word is conviction. Jesus wanted the church and he wants us to be convicted, to be convinced that, that this is the word of the Lord, that this is the word of God, that this is the infallible, God-breathed, life-giving, all-satisfying word of God, that this is where you find your security and your identity and this is how you learn how to live. Remember how each letter in the book of Revelation begins with a description of the the risen Lord Jesus from chapter 1. Look at how he's described in in chapter 2, verse 13. These are the words of of him, that is Jesus, who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So that sword, a picture of authority and power. And Jesus says, I have the sword. Not just in my hand, but in my mouth. Revelation chapter 1. The words of Jesus, he says, are, are, are powerful and authoritative. My words are true and soul-satisfying. Do you believe that? You know, when you read of the day of Pentecost, when the words of God was proclaimed, people were cut to the core. When you go to 2 Timothy 3.16, that, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, training, correcting, and righteousness. So you don't need to rip any pages out of your Bible. You don't need to make it relevant. This is still relevant. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that this contains everything you need for life and godliness. You don't need external sources to find out how to live the best life. Or Hebrews 4, verse 12, that the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. That's what the word does. The word of God is a bit like a a surgeon's scalpel that it, it cuts you. It, it's painful at times, but it shapes you, it heals you, it refines you, and it addresses sin within and Satan without. Now, surely you've had that experience where you've sat with the words of Jesus and it, it's so richly relevant and soul-satisfying. And it, it might not be what pop culture is peddling. It might not be your community is communicating. But this is true. This is your plumb line. Are you convicted about that? That this is the word of God and it doesn't change. But are you also convicted that the world that you live in is a very difficult world to be a Christian in? That's what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, I, I know where you live. I know the world that you live in where Satan has his throne. He's saying in this world, Satan is still powerful and present. 
Let me be very clear. There's only one throne in heaven. God's on his throne always. God's always in control. But Satan still has some power and some presence. He's still tempting us and seducing us. To quote 1 Peter chapter 5, he, he's prowling around like a lion seeking Christians to devour. And I hope you know that. It's really hard to be a Christian in this world. Uh, Satan uses two weapons. He uses suffering and seduction. He uses suffering. He says, look, if I, if I can get this Christian to suffer, they might wander in their faith. But the reality of that often doesn't work. You know, the suffering church often gets stronger and the suffering Christian often gets closer to Christ. So if suffering doesn't work, let's use seduction. Let's entice these Christians. He loves to entice us. He loves it when we are so immersed in our culture. Satan loves it when we shift our focus away from Christ and onto the world. He, he loves it when we lower the bar of holiness saying, oh, well, compared to the world, I'm doing pretty well. He loves it when we decide not to be too radical for Christ. That's the pressure to, to conform to our culture, and it's huge. And Jesus says, church, I know where you live. That's not a threat, it's a comfort. I know where you live. I know it's really hard to live in a world of loud, dissenting voices. He says, I know what it's like because I've been here. Remember that? Your Savior's been here. He's lived in this dark, depraved world. He's been tempted by Satan. Satan took him into the wilderness and dangled all these promises in front of him. Remember how Jesus used the word of God to combat Satan. He says, that's what you're called to do. I'm not sure whether we do really believe this, that, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not about people. Our battle, our biggest battle is against the spiritual realm. It's against Satan. Because every minute of every moment of every day, Satan longs for you to fail. It's a spiritual battle. Are you convinced of that? And yet you've got the weapon here called the sword of the spirit called the word of God. We're not supposed to be comfortable in this world. We're supposed to be set apart and distinct. In many ways, it was more obvious in Pergamon because they had temples everywhere. Perhaps it's more subtle for us. But please don't be naive. Living in this world, it will be enticing. It will be seductive. The voices are loud. This morning I got on my phone, on my iPhone, my, my weekly tally of my screen time. It increased by 4% this week. And it just reminded me, you know, all these false promises that have been infiltrating my brain all week. All these lies that have been infiltrating my brain all week. I wonder what my Bible time has been like this week compared to my screen time. And yet, verse 13, yet this church in Pergamon remained true to my name. He's saying, well, well done, church. You remain true to Christ. You remain true to God's only begotten son. You didn't sacrifice your faith on the altar of money, sex, and power. He says, well done. You didn't renounce your faith, verse 13, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan now lives. We don't really know who Antipas was. He's probably an elder of the church. 
but he's given the same title as Jesus given back in chapter 1, a faithful witness. He, he remained steadfast and true to Christ. He would not bow down to the idols of this world. He wouldn't become like the world, and for that, it cost him his very life. Because that's what happens, church, when you are so convicted that this is the word of God and the world is a dangerous place to live. You, you suffer. I think of a church in Canada that, that, that refused to bow down to the world's views on sexuality. And for that, they lost their, their church license, their church building, and their church homes. But God's growing that church. I think of a friend in New Zealand who has been persecuted for standing up for biblical truth. People ask me, Paul, why do you read so many biographies of men and women of faith? It's because I, I love to read about men and women who are so convinced that this is the word of God and they're going to stand firm in a world that wants to deny Christ. So are you convinced about that? This is the word and the world that you live in is, is where we're seduced by Satan. Number two, compromise. Compromise. Nevertheless, verse 14, I have... A few things against you. Not just one, but a few. There are, there are some, just, just a handful of Christians, so-called Christians in this church, who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So, so Pergamon was this church that was in danger of becoming too cosy with culture, more like culture than Christ. A veneer of Christ, but enticed by the world. And it starts with their teaching, verse 14. They hold to the teaching of Balaam, verse 15. They hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, that, that teaching, that doctrine, that belief. Because I hope you know that what you listen to impacts your behavior. And another weapon of Satan, if, if suffering doesn't work and seduction doesn't work, let's take the word of God and twist the word of God. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden? Right back in the garden, Satan's there saying, did God really say this? God won't really mind. It's been said if Satan can kill a church, sorry, if Satan can't kill a church, he will join that church and then he'll pervert, he'll pervert the teaching at that church and whisper lies and get into the heads of the believers. Verse 14. There were some in Pergamon who held to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Do you know that story from Numbers 22? God's people are traveling to the promised land. They're on the edge of Moab. And Balak is king of the Moabites. And he's scared by the Israelites, so he hires this fake prophet called Balaam. He's, Balaam is, is a greedy prophet. He's driven by money and pride. Uh, he tries to curse the Israelites three times. It always fails, and instead of cursing, he blesses them. And so when suffering doesn't work, let's go to seduction. And the, 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 ta the tactic is this. Let's send the Moabite women, and they can seduce the Israelite men and cause them to compromise their faith. And of course, that works. And that was a church at Pergamum. They had pagan feasts on Saturdays and communion on Sundays. They had sexual immorality on Saturdays and they surrendered to Christ on Sundays. They visited temple prostitutes on a Tuesday and went to Connect Group on Wednesday. 
This church chased money, they trampled on people, they indulged in wine and women and wanton debauchery with a veneer of Christianity. Sound familiar? So easy to put a mask on on a Sunday, isn't it? And yet you know throughout the whole week you've lived a compromised Christian life. Likewise, verse 15, they have held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were Christianity gone wild. It was grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And don't, don't, don't get me wrong, grace is wonderful. Way too many churches teach law, not grace. But this church wanted to overemphasize grace, perverse grace. It was grace on steroids. It didn't matter what you did because it was all covered by grace. So go on, send it up. Chase that career, pursue that porn fix, lie, cheat, steal, flirt with the world, find your identity in your car, your house, your pool, your kids, sin, 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 sin. It's all okay because you're covered by grace. And that is so enticing, isn't it? Because it makes you feel so good. Drip, 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 drip. You ever been fishing? When you go fishing, you, you get this bait on the end of the fishing line. And as a human being, you think, oh, this is, this is obviously not a real fish. But then you put your bait into the water and this fish comes along and this stupid fish thinks it's real and it grabs the bait, it bites the bait and before you know it, it is trapped. And that is like the the culture of our world. It's like this bait and yet we're kind of blind to how seductive it really is and how enticing it is and how trapping it really is. I want to say, wake up, church. The promises of this world will never satisfy. It seduces you. It entices you. And then it traps you. I've been convinced this week because you know I love this world. You know I love nice clothes and nice food and nice wine and nice houses and You know I like to be popular and I know I want nice holidays, but Christ didn't call me to live a nice life, but a godly life. And I just wonder whether I have normalized what the Bible calls compromised. What kind of compromised teaching are we open to? What's the new teaching of Balaam or Nicolaitans today? I think it's these. It's the the God won't mind teaching. Now, God understands, God will forgive you. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about judgment. Let's just talk about compassion and mercy and grace. Or the, the lower the bar teaching. Now, the Puritans, they talked about being zealous and being holy and being godly and being pure, but hey, we just talk about being nice people. Let's lower the bar. Let's not talk about holiness, let's, let's talk about happiness. What about the victory teaching? And we have victory in Christ and Christ has set you free and you can do all things through him who strengthens you. He's got plans to prosper you and not to harm you. So just sit back and just watch God work. 
You don't have to strive for godliness. Or how about the love triumphs over truth preaching? Love is love. People just need to hear that God loves them. I want to warn us, church, be very discerning the teaching that you put into your ears because that will shape your conduct. The food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality, that's our world today. All this stuff that we pursue thinking will satisfy. Now what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, well done. He doesn't say, I I get it, I understand, it's hard to live in this world. Look at the first word of verse 16. Not a popular word, he says, repent. He says, repent, therefore, verse 16. Think about that word, repent. It's actually a word of mercy. A word of mercy, because God could have just wiped them out. He's done that before. But he wants to give them a second chance. He wants to give them a chance to change. He says, repent, stop it. To repent means that you do a a complete U-turn. To repent means that that you change your heart. You change your mind. You change your behavior. You cut it out. And I just wonder whether God is saying to our church this morning, stop it. Stop sleeping around. Stop looking at porn. Stop partying hard. Stop the sleazy conversation. Stop the gossip. Stop the slander. Stop the judgmental looks at other people. Stop the the favoritism where you get into your cliques and you judge people. Stop anger. Stop pride. Stop it. I don't know what it is where we are compromising and we're we're coating it with our culture, but cut it out. Be radical. Now, that might mean for some of us that you, you cut off all your social media. It might mean that you stop looking at news sites. It, it might mean that you stop seeing certain people. And we've all got this responsibility to make sure that our church is not compromised. Sorry, God's church is not compromised, not our church. You know, when, when you see someone at church, a brother or sister in Christ who is too familiar with culture and is forsaking their Christ-likeness, When you spot that, it's not just my job to confront that. It's all of our jobs. Because the consequences are horrific, verse 16. Otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's just saying, well, judgment will come. It could come now. It will certainly come in the last day. There's a bit of the gospel that always scares me. It's that bit when Jesus tells that story where these people come up to him on the last day and says, but Lord, we we did this in your name, we did that in your name, and Jesus says, away from me. I never knew you. And it scares me because it's so easy to have a veneer of Christianity. But there's no Christ. It's just the comforts of this world. So church, verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying, listen, please, wake up, stop, repent. As a a parent of four kids, I often say, have you heard what I said? Have you heard what I said? And I know that my kids have actually heard the words. I'm not questioning that. I'm questioning whether they're going to do what I say. That's what the Spirit is saying to us. Please don't sit here and say, yes, I know that our culture is seductive. Please don't sit here and say, I know it's dangerous to live in this world because we're so immersed in our culture. Please don't sit here and say, I've heard that sermon. The Spirit wants you to do something about it. 
to make sure you're not living a compromised Christian life. So I want to ask you, is there an area of your life that God is trying to tap you on the shoulder right now and say, you're too comfortable in that area? Is there a sin that you are tolerating? Is there a sin that you are justifying? Because the Spirit's saying right now, repent. Please repent. So a conviction, a compromise, and lastly, a comfort. And we'll finish quickly with this. Verse 17, to the the one who's victorious, I love this, I, I, I will give, it's, it's a gift from God, it's not earned, it's not deserved, I will give some of the hidden manna and I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. This is the promise for those who are pursuing a life of godliness and purity, it's a promise of this, it's, it's full satisfaction now and a certain salvation then. Full satisfaction now. That is the manner. Remember that story in Exodus where, or Numbers where God provided just enough manner for every day. That white stuff from heaven, a gift of God to satisfy them, to sustain them day by day. And Jesus stepped into the world and says, no, I, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the manna from heaven. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. That is the promise that, that Jesus will fully satisfy you in the moment, in the day. Every moment of every day when you look to Christ, he will fully satisfy you. You do not have to look at the stuff of this world. Please find your satisfaction and your security and your joy in Christ. I'll give you the manna. And I'll give you a white stone. That is the eternal banquet. This white stone, it it could be a stone of acquittal because judges in those days had a a, a pot of black stones and a pot of white stones and black was for the guilty and white was for the innocent. It could be saying the judge will give you a white stone because you're innocent. You're covered in the blood of Jesus. You're forgiven in Christ. It could be that. I think he's saying something different. I think he's saying the white stone of victory because the winner of a race was giving a white stone and that white stone was your ticket into the award ceremony. And I think Christ is saying to you today, if you just stand firm, if you just be committed to Christ, if you hold on to Christ, if you cross that finish line and you haven't compromised, you've made true to my name, you'll get the white stone. You'll get the ticket to heaven. And it's got a new name on it. It's not your name, it's Christ's name. Because he's the one who won. He's the one who's victorious. So I want to plead with this church, do not compromise. Don't be so seduced by our culture. Let's drown out all those voices of this world with a louder voice, the the voice of your saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a heavy sermon, so I'm going to give you a moment just to, to ponder And then we're going to pray pray of confession together. Let's pray this prayer together. Dear Father, my sin is ever before me. Idolatry plagues my heart. 
I'm consumed with thoughts of self-importance, self-promotion and self-service. In my deepest parts, I doubt that you are God and want to rule myself. I cry out to you, Father, only you can deliver me. Show me the cross, for without Jesus' robe of righteousness, I am nothing. Show me the love of my beautiful Saviour, who gave up this glory and even his life, that I might be delivered from idolatry. Show me that in every season of life, Jesus is better, in sorrow, in victory, in comfort and in riches. Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. May the work of Jesus ever stir me towards radical, joyful obedience. May he be my reason for living and my eternal source of joy, hope, faith and love. Amen. And may the God of love bring us back to himself. May he forgive us our sins and assure us of his eternal love in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.